Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your uh, power that can open our minds to understand the scriptures. You did that for Cleopas and his traveling companion on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 45. And that's what I pray right now. Would you please open our minds to understand the scriptures? Would you please open our minds to understand what those two men understood in Luke 24, the, the Christ-centeredness of the Bible, especially this morning? Specifically, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, too, Lord, that you would help us to see the priority of world evangelization and the importance that our mission cannot proceed forward without power from on high. I thank you, Lord, that you hold that key in your hands. If we don't see those, it's because you have not granted us to see them. So please don't hold those gifts back this morning. Please help us to see Jesus clear as day, clear as day. If we can't find him at the end of Joshua 5, we can't find him. So please uh, grant us a vision of our great high king, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And would you do that especially this election week? In the name of King Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, it seems like a good Sunday to talk politics. What do you think? Anybody else have this on their mind this weekend? Just a little bit. Me too. Tuesday, November 6th is the elephant in the room. We might as well give way to it and address this thing head on. Uh, my initial instinct several weeks back was to set the sermon series on Joshua aside just for a Sunday and to do uh, a sermon relative to the marriage amendment that's on the ballot in two days. This Sunday was originally going to be an exposition of Genesis 18 and 19. Those chapters mean anything to anyone here. The story of Abraham interceding for Sodom, Lot's rescue, and then God's subsequent destruction of both the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet I'm grateful that I serve this church alongside some other very wise shepherds who helped me to see through a, probably the right idea, maybe with the wrong text. And so we had a meeting a few weeks ago, and our elders uh, wonderfully prevailed and helped me to see um, that maybe there's another way to do this. And I think there is. Um, upon prayer and some reflection... Some very key counsel from our elders. I've decided to adjust that plan just slightly, which is to say we're not adjusting the plan at all. We're going to take the next three verses in Joshua, and we are going to find profound implications for the election in two days. That's what we're going to do. My hope is to both continue with the series on Joshua and to address the, address the broader issue of Christians and government. This sermon will have application to marriage amendment, to presidential election, to national, state, local levels of uh, responsibility in voting that we all have. 
but I want to serve our congregation with a message that will maybe press into the days ahead beyond Tuesday better than the first message would. I want to cast our vision somewhat wider and take up a larger topic of politics according to the Bible, which I think is what we're presented an opportunity to do in Joshua 5. Um, politics according to the Bible. In fact, apart from Holy Scripture, probably the single greatest resource I've had this past week is a book by that title, Politics According to the Bible, uh, by one of my favorite authors, Wayne Grudem. Uh, it's a book that I'd recommend without hesitation to everybody here to have on your shelf as a resource. You do not have to agree with his conclusions to benefit from him as an author and as a wise thinker. Uh, if you love Jesus and love the Bible, you won't be disappointed with the book even if you dot your I's and cross your T's differently. Uh, There's bibliographical information inside the study questions, if you'd be interested. Speaking of study questions, in the second study question, um, I reference the fact that in this book, Grudem brings up what what he calls five wrong views of Christians and government. Five wrong views. Five mistaken understandings of how we as followers of Jesus ought to live in relationship to the government in which we find ourselves. I want to give you those five views. You see them listed there. You may want to take a note or two around those. This is an extended introduction with one-point sermon. Okay? The first mistaken view is that government should compel religion. Some people think that. Government should compel religion. This view was lived out in the 17th century during the Thirty Years' War most pronounced in the country of Germany, but some other places in Europe. We see this view active today in such countries as Saudi Arabia, where the law of the land actually compels people to accept Islamic law. The main problem with this view is that clearly Jesus teaches a different vision. He does. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, Jesus does not endorse the government should compel religion view. Rather, he indicates that government and religion are two diverse realms of power and authority. They don't completely overlap on one another, and one does not compel the other. Government does not compel religion. Second wrong view that Christians and government have is that government should exclude religion. This one's popular. Government should exclude religion. I wouldn't say it's popular in this room, per se, but it's, it's embraced. Let's be honest. Uh, this room, 24 hours from now, is filled with a different group of people who have different convictions than we do. The direction of our public schools under the influence of the Supreme Court since 1947 has not been freedom of religion. It's been freedom from religion, increasingly. That's not the same thing. The well-known phrase, a wall between church and state, is not gospel, much less constitution. It's an interpretation of a judge of these things. It's not the wording of the First Amendment itself. Jesus clearly teaches that church and state exist in different realms. They're not the same thing. Government cannot, should not compel religion. 
but he's not indicating that they should function full and free from one another. The Bible is very uncomfortable in this regard. Consider the words of the prophet Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel 4.27 O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. We shouldn't desire that government should compel religion, but we should not fall into the opposite error. And it is the error, by and large, of many people in our nation today that government should exclude religion. That's not true. It is not the place of the United States government to exclude religion. No more than it's the place of the government to coerce and compel religion. Okay. Third wrong view. All government is evil and demonic. All government is evil and demonic. It's my belief that some Christians take this view not because they're persuaded it's the clear teaching of the Bible, but because they hate the first two options. And at that point, I'm just, I'm with you. I get that. I, I understand that to a degree. I can. But the view that all government is evil and demonic is a third error. And I would urge you not to fall into this error. This is a cool error, especially among my generation. Some who adopt this view even quote scripture to do it. Uh, Luke 4, 6, Satan says to Jesus about all the kingdoms of the world, he says, they have been delivered to me, Satan says this, and I give it to whom I will. And some people actually argue that because Jesus doesn't directly contradict Satan here, Satan must be representing reality accurately. I was shocked to read some of the individuals that believe this this past week. Those who adopt this view are forgetting one crucial thing about Satan. <laughs> Jesus said in John 8, 44, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. You think he was shooting straight with Jesus in the desert? No. That was useful for him to say that. Jesus doesn't have to contradict him for that to be wrong. God contradicts Satan anyway. <laughs> Daniel 4, 17. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. That's what God says about the governments of the world. God does that. Important for us to remember in a democracy. We read in Romans 13, 1 and 2, the words of the inspired Apostle Paul. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He was saying that under the regime of a man who thought he was God, Caesar. There's no authority except from God. All that exists have been instituted by God, Romans 13 says. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the view that all government is evil and demonic, this is actually held by an increasing, a surprising number of people. Uh, people in our country today, people who would consider themselves evangelical Christians and people who would consider themselves leaders within evangelical movements. Local Twin Cities pastor, theologian, and author Greg Boyd is one of the most outspoken proponents of this view. This view is wrong. Another view, fourth view that's wrong on the topic of Christians in government. 
is the view that says, do evangelism, not politics. This sounds almost right, especially if you believe in heaven and hell. Do evangelism, not politics. This has one advantage over the others. Uh, It's half biblical, unlike the others, which are totally unbiblical. And this one's attractive, I think, because of some of the most clear proponents of this view are people that I greatly admire, whose preaching ministries I want to emulate if I possibly can. This position has been held for over 40 years under the preaching of John MacArthur. Um, And you have to know exactly how I feel about John MacArthur. There are very few pastors in this country whom I respect more than Dr. John MacArthur. I think he's got nearly everything right in 40 years. He's taught through the entire New Testament in Sun Valley, California at Grace Community Church. That is something. And he's never considered himself a political person. I'm tempted to say that do evangelism, not politics, is the majority view in the evangelical world, except for the fact that most evangelicals aren't doing evangelism either. Many evangelicals today are doing neither evangelism nor politics, which is doubly tragic. This position forgets that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is followed by Ephesians 2, 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For, here's the cause, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works, which certainly would include, but is in no way limited to, Joseph, who was the highest-ranking office holder under Pharaoh in Egypt, doing good works in Egypt. This would include Daniel serving as high official in the secular court of King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to King Ahasuerus in Persia. Don't forget Queen Esther's massive influence in the policies of the same king, King Ahasuerus. You could add to those examples the political pressure that people like John the Baptist and Apostle Paul put on uh, political leaders of their day. Do evangelism, not politics, is almost right. But almost right is somewhat wrong. I, for one, am glad for historic and modern-day examples of men, at least in the Western Hemisphere. I'm thinking of people uh, like William Wilberforce and Francis Schaeffer, C. Everett Koop, Charles Colson. Praise God that these guys did evangelism and politics. Final wrong view. Perhaps you could predict this one, right? Uh, Do politics, not evangelism. Do politics, not evangelism. This one, again, is it's probably not the unique error of many in this room. Probably not. It is the error of many, though. It's the error of many who consider themselves Christians. Here's how you can know if you're one of these people. Um, you, or maybe someone you know, names the name of Jesus. You do. You self-identify as a Christian. But at the end of the day, your greatest trust... Most of your thinking, most of your time, most all of your secret hopes are placed on politics, not your faith. 
You may not say so, but you live this way. Test yourself. Is the following sentence just cold comfort for you? Well, no matter who's in the Oval Office, thank God that Jesus Christ is on the throne. If that phrase doesn't bring comfort to you, I'm concerned. It ought to bring massive comfort to you. There are many, many reasons why do politics, not evangelism, is wrong. Maybe the simplest way to put it is Psalm 146, verses 1 to 7. Brooks Waldron preached this for us back in January. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes. Hear me when you vote Tuesday. Put not your trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, it returns to the earth. That very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, keeps his promises forever, unlike politicians. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He's the great political leader. So do politics, not evangelism, is a popular view in the country today. It's sadly popular in the church. But it's not popular in churches that genuinely worship Jesus and believe all of the Bible. It's not particularly popular in those churches. So the final wrong view is do politics, not evangelism. Now, the next step this morning is to open our Bibles to Joshua 5.13, if you haven't. Joshua 5.13, if you used uh, one of the Red Bibles, today it's 181, page 181 in the Red Bibles. Just three verses today. I am marveling at God's faithfulness here to us. This is, this is only the Lord that could do this, to let us go three more verses deep into our study of Joshua and have something very helpful to take to the polls with us on Tuesday. We're going to make progress in the next three verses, but we're going to speak in a way that will be extremely relevant to the election coming up in 48 hours. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries? And he said, No. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thank you, Lord. Here's the big idea today. As you enter into the rest of God, consider, just for your consideration, that Christ is not first for you or against you. He is over you. As you strive to enter into the rest of God, consider that Christ is not first for you or against you. He is over you. This is our eighth sermon in the book of Joshua. As you recall, the overarching theme of the book of Joshua that's been helping us understand, what's a Christian understanding of this book? I think it's the idea that 
that if you have been saved by the grace of Christ, you ought to strive to enter into the rest of God. And the rest of God is precisely what Joshua and his generation are just about to enter into. They are right on the brink of it. It's like the morning of the Jericho battle. They're so close. And if you know Jesus, you're headed for the rest of God too. That's true. If you know Jesus, you're headed for God's rest. But it's election season. And we get crazy this time of year. We really do. Especially every four years. <laughs> the first week of November, if you're living in America, is just weird for a Christ follower. And we need some reorientation. As you enter into the rest of God, consider that Christ is not first for you or against you. He's over you. So this chapter, these three verses, is a gift to us. It's a huge kindness of the Lord to have these three verses as we head into the polls. Here's another way to put it. Every day, but especially over the next several days, bear in mind, Christ the Lord is sovereign before he is partisan. Christ the Lord is sovereign before he is partisan. I got a portion of that phrase from a pastor and a professor named Dale Davis. Wrote a commentary on Joshua, 1988. Christ the Lord is sovereign before he is partisan. Why is that true? Well, let's look at the first half of verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. First order of business, who is this man? We know who Joshua is, who's the other man? He's called a man here. I think that's because that's what Joshua thought he was at first blush, a man only. This person, just to cut to the chase, is none other than an Old Testament appearance of God himself. This is what is sometimes called in the world of Bible study a theophany. A theophany. Uh, God's making himself manifest. A theophany. A personal, visible, physical, flesh and blood manifestation of God Almighty. Why do I think that? At least four reasons. Number one, his sword. His drawn sword in his right hand, verse 13 tells us. Um, Numbers 22, 23, and 1 Chronicles 21, verse 16, use the exact same description to speak of the angel of the Lord who is the bearer of divine judgment. So we at least have an angel on our hands here in verse 13, but maybe more, and there is more. Divine judgment is exactly what's going to occur, occur imminently in Jericho. He's drawn his sword. Second clue that this is a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of God, is the title that this individual takes to himself. He's the commander of the army of the Lord. That title, as far as I can tell, is found one other place in the Old Testament, and it's found in Daniel 8, 11. It's the same Hebrew construction in the original. And there it's translated, the prince of the host. But interestingly, at least the English Standard Version capitalizes the P, the prince of the host, the commander of the army, the angel armies. Why a capital P? Because in context, 
God is seen in Daniel chapter 8. Third reason why I think this is a theophany is that Joshua falls to the ground with his face to the earth and worships him. Unlike other places in Scripture, when there is a being unworthy of such veneration made out to be a a deity, the worship service is canceled (laughs) right as the worship service begins. The person receiving the worship won't accept it and sets the person straight that's in front of them doing the idolatrous worship. Um, What's interesting here is that Joshua falls with his face to the earth, begins to worship him, and the individual doesn't call Joshua off. In effect, he receives the worship. Um, Maybe you remember the account in Acts 14 where the people mistake Barnabas and Paul for the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. That's an interesting little tidbit, biblical information. They start to arrange an idolatrous sacrifice complete with oxen right in front of these guys. And Paul is just mortified. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Perhaps you remember the moment in the final chapter of the book of Revelation. This is interesting, too, because it's the final chapter. You'd think John would have it right by the end of the Bible, and he doesn't. Uh, The Apostle John has just seen vision upon vision of the new heavens and new earth. He is absolutely enraptured. He's seeing things that are just stunning. And he turns, uh, maybe forgivably, in ecstasy to the angel that's beside him showing him these things. And he says, I'll just let John say it, uh, Revelation 22, 8 and 9. I, John, who heard and saw these things, when I heard and saw them, fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That's what the angel says to him. Our dear friend, uh, Brooks Waldron, whom I had coffee with yesterday, told me that he was in attendance four years ago at Chicago's Grant Park for the acceptance speech of the president-elect in 2008. And he told me that the mood in Grant Park that evening wasn't just festive. It was downright worship. Not unlike what we see here in Joshua 5.14. Be very careful. Worship God. Vote for candidates. Worship God. So, like the men in Acts 14, the Apostle John in Revelation 22, Joshua falls to the ground before this man and worships him, and the person receives his worship. He doesn't call him off. Who gets to do that? Well, if you're in the Bible, only God. In the Bible, only God. Fourth and final reason why I think this is a theophany is because of what he says to Joshua. Um, If this person is not God, he is certainly acting like him. Verse 15, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where have we heard that before? Burning bush, Exodus 
3, verses 5 and 6. This is what God says to Moses. Just a little, little sidebar here. We have a new Moses for the people of Israel, and his name is Joshua. That's one little thing that's being done here. One little more piece of encouragement for Joshua as he leads this fearful mission into Canaan. You're the new Moses, Joshua. That's what he's saying here. Joshua, I'm sure all of it clicked together for him, and he was stunned at that moment. If this isn't the Lord, this is a really good impersonation. Um, you'll notice that the chapter division between verses five and uh, chapters five and six is very poor, actually. This might take the cake for the single worst chapter division in the whole Bible because it just destroys the continuity of the story that starts in verse 13 and goes right through the end of chapter 6. Notice that in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 and following, Joshua and the Lord are still standing there with each other. No time has lapsed between verse 15 and chapter 5 and verse 1 and chapter 6. And who are we told is explicitly speaking to Joshua in verse 2? The Lord. No thanks to our chapter divisions. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand. So taken together, that would be my little case, that Joshua's looking at God. This is a theophany. I would be of a mind to say this is not just a theophany, this is a Christophany. An Old Testament appearance of the Son of God in flesh or something like flesh. A Christophany, a personal, visible, physical, flesh and blood manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. It's got to be one of the three persons of the Trinity. You only got three to choose from. Who's the one who does this sort of thing? Whose business is it to show us the Father? Whose business is it to bring God to us? Whose business is it to be the mediator between God and man, the Son? So this isn't just a theophany. This is a downright Christophany. This is Christ. Now here's the final step before we head into some application for the election week ahead. It all rides on the question. Let's look at Joshua's question to the Lord in verse 13. And the Lord's answer to him in verse 14. Joshua sees this person in battle attire, no doubt, sword drawn. And he says to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? It's an interesting question. Are you for us or for them? It's a brave question. If you'll recall, it was bravery and courage that God commanded Joshua to show back in chapter 1. He says, You're not going to get anywhere without courage, Joshua. So during his commissioning, God says, To Joshua, chapter 1, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 9, God says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you, with you, with you, wherever you go. And it turns out he's with him right here. And Joshua isn't afraid. In fact, he's a little bit concerned because he doesn't know who he is at first blush. And so he steps right up to this guy who has the drawn sword and says, are you for us or for them? 
That's courage. Now, courageous isn't the only thing that Joshua is here. He's also misguided to ask the question in the first place. Notice the Lord's response to the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? The answer is no. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. Wrong question. Try again, Joshua. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Hmm. And by the way, you might want to remove your shoes, son. As you enter into the rest of God, consider that Christ is not first for you or against you. He's over you. He's over you. Christ the Lord is sovereign before he is partisan. Was God pro-Israel? Of course. Come on. Of course. He was pro-Israel. Is God pro-church in Christ? We're safe to say that he is. Romans 8, 31 to 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you're in Christ, make no mistake, God is for you. But the way Joshua frames the question is unhelpful to say the least. The accent here is all out of whack. It's like asking Jesus if he's a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah, you can ask him that. The answer is going to be no. And he's not an independent, and he's not a Republicrat, or whatever. No. Alexander McLaren paraphrases the Lord's concern here when he writes... I am not on your side, Joshua. You are on mine. We have the right, McLaren says, to be sure that God is on our side when we have made sure that we are on God's. Put yourself under God's orders and He will be on your side. That's right. Do you know and treasure the Bible's teaching on protection of life and marriage and the family? I hope you do. Have you ever considered that scriptural wisdom might even extend to issues like economics and the environment, even national defense and foreign policy and freedom of speech and religion? Sure. Sure. But though Joshua was bold, he was also wrong. He got the question perfectly backward. He should have seen the Son of God in all of his power and raw authority and cried out, Are we for you? He said it the other way around, and he got a no. Remember that Jesus says in Luke 11, 23, Whoever is not with me is against me. So as you enter into the rest of God, consider that Christ is not first for you or against you. He's over you. Christ the Lord is sovereign before he is partisan. He's not one of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1 says. We don't elect Christ. We didn't choose him. 
He elects and chooses us. And unlike our elected officials this election cycle, Christ the King, thankfully, has no term limits. He doesn't need four years to get it right. He's been getting it right for 40 billion. And he will into eternity. That's a glorious thing. I do hope that if you are 18 years or older that you get registered and vote. I trust that you will this Tuesday. But no matter what, on Wednesday morning, remember, your national, state, and local leaders are servants of God to whom you should be subject. It doesn't matter what the paper says on Wednesday morning. It may be Thursday morning before we know, right? Your national, state, and local leaders are servants of God to whom you should be subject. And if that sounds strange to you, you need to be more familiar with Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2. That's what God says. So, pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Pray for them. Do you? You pray for them? As much as you laud them or lump them, you pray for them? Do you thank God for them? Really? That's your first instinct? When all the states come in on Tuesday night? Even if your guy doesn't win? You thank God for your leaders? John Piper once said, we should thank God for almost any government. That's true. Respect them. In your heart of hearts, do you respect those that God has put over you and me? Do you respect them? It's a hard job. Do you honor them? That is, I think, respect is probably harder because it's, it's right inside the heart. But when respect is there, honor comes out. Public honor of our leaders. Do you? Do you honor them as much as you throw them under the bus? When was the last time that you honored your national, state, and local leaders, no matter who they were? I sincerely hope you can live and affirm those biblical commands, no matter who you vote for, national, state, local, level. God says these things, and woe to us if we ignore them. As you enter into the rest of God, consider that Christ is not first for you or against you. Christ is sovereign before he's partisan. You have the right to be sure that God is on your side. Don't miss me saying this in all of this 10,000-foot overview. You have the right to be sure that God is on your side when you have made sure that you are on God's. Put yourself under his orders, and he will be on your side. Let's pray. I'll praise to you, Lord Jesus, for being our high commander and chief. Lord, help us. Would you please keep us from any of those errors on on the front end of our time together today? Those five views are confusing people today. They're all wrong to some degree or another. Would you help us to find a sixth way? (laughs) Would you please help us to honor Christ the Lord as holy, to be citizens of another country first and foremost, Would you help us, Lord, to live with reference to our elected officials the way that you desire us to? 
But please help us to be responsible and vote. And at the end of the day, Lord, ascribe all worship and honor and glory and the ultimate praise and respect would go to you, Lord Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, in whose name we pray.